guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism was said by George Washington in his farewell address in 1847. No, that's not right. That was way off. <laughs> 1796? Somewhere in there. Yep. George Washington was the man, the first president of these United States. And a good segue into what we're going to be discussing, Chris. Even in the past few episodes of Continuing Education Weekly, this, our weekly podcast, and trying to understand some things philosophical, some things historical, some things current events, and everything in between, we have talked about some of the philosophers, and the philosophical underpinnings of the modern world, I guess more specifically the modern Western world. We're going to start thinking of some of uh, our some American philosophers that are philosophers which is not an oxymoron <laughs> um, and some of the actual practitioners in the uh, of these uh, political science um, in the political philosophers such as John Locke Rousseau Hobbes Descartes um, that were able to put into practice yes that's right in these United States so this week, our, our we're gonna we're gonna talk about John Locke specifically, yeah, and his that's, that's philosophy, funny. which he was credited um, and cited by no less than Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who I would say were the uh, two philosophical leaders of the American Revolution, first and foremost, and they both cited Locke liberally as as primary inspirations. So I think he's he's a good philosopher as we get into this period of history. Uh, and then for our historical subject, we can talk about what brought people to what's now the United States in the first place, these early settlements. All right. And so John Locke and Adam Smith, too? Adam, Adam Smith, that? of course. Yeah. Yeah. We can get into Adam Smith a little bit as well. Because they kind of both played on different. Uh, one was political. One was a little more economic. Fair to say. <laughs> yeah, fair to say. Yeah, Wealth of Nations being Adam Smith's, um, which published in 1776. How about that? Mm-hmm. Um, very safe to say that that was a, a, a highly influential text in the estab- early establishment of the U.S. government, John Locke being um, a century prior, but also an enemy of the English crown for 
many of the same philosophical reasons as as the U.S. Revolution. I think it's easy to think of the U.S. Revolution as being in a vacuum, as something that that started here in the United States, but it actually was a continuation of sentiments felt by other Englishmen and men the world over. But mm. John Locke was an enemy of the crown, spent most of his life running from the monarchy and the king's justice uh, as, as a revolutionary thinker um, a, a century before the U.S. Revolution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of property <laughs> um, being cited that's him, lifted right? directly. That's what we said last week. Yeah, lifted Father directly. of liberalism is, yeah. is kind of his... Classical liberalism, or modern liberalism? I would say classical. <laughs> I guess that's still classical, period. Yeah, we're still going. We're still back in the classical times. So, yeah, we're going to get into uh, leading up to the U.S. Revolution and some of these philosophical underpinnings, try to uh, wrap our heads around the work of John Locke and Adam Smith. And then for our current event this week, Chris. Yeah. Big doings. Facebook. Zuckerberg. Back to England. Hot water. Cambridge huh? Analytica. Yeah. Now they're really screwing us, huh? Yeah. I, the thing that's really become apparent to me with all this is that it, it's a reflection of how screwed up our campaigns are in this country. <laughs> that's really so, what it so says So Cambridge Analytica was caught... Um, on, on in a sting operation by uh, Channel Four British News, basically, pretty overtly admitting to doing whatever it takes to win elections on behalf of their candidates, including extraordinarily immoral activity. We can get into a little bit, but very f- fascinating. If for no other reason than this video released to the public is about as scene for scene, word for word, an example of something you would see in a what I would presume to be an outrageous political thriller yeah. film. Very Machiavellian. Yeah, to see it to see the CEO of that company saying what he says in that video, um, and in the manner he did is like a scene for scene political thriller, like oh, that's real. Something like this can be real. Um and this was a firm hired by the Trump administration, but many other political administrations around the world. Questions of legality and, and whether or not this is part of the course are, are have simmered up to the surface as a result. Uh, very, very much, I would think, um, a product of Steve Bannon and his relationship with the Trump campaign during the election. Right. Um, and this the type of ads put together by Cambridge Analytica are very, um, very uh, they have similar to what you might see on, yeah, on Breitbart and, you know, being, being savvy to digital media as, as Steve Bannon is, seems, seems like the kind of firm he would hire. Yeah. Uh, the pinnacle of corruption in, in, um, well, I mean, in it's interesting context, political context. Politically speaking, there is a case to be made for what they did. I mean, right. they're, they're trying to win elections. Yeah. And, and as they see it, they'll do whatever it takes to do that. And I think that brings up another interesting philosophical topic, which is one that I typically associate with Kant, who I mentioned last week. Uh, yes. No need for puns. Come on. Okay. Come on. He's a real person. It's Emmanuel just, Kant. teed it right up. But yeah. the idea of, you know, like 
when did the ends justify the means and do they ever? And this is something that's coming up more and more now in our current political environment. It's just like the, the lengths that people are going to the, the ways that they are willing to sacrifice all of the norms that have existed and, and basically throwing ethics to the side just to achieve their, their purpose is really begging the question, you know, when, how far does this go? Yeah. I mean, of course, winning elections should be important, but are we just going to throw all this out the window and decide that, you know, any, any ends will justify the means? Isn't isn't that the question? Yeah. I mean, I think we're living that question maybe more than we're thinking about it in many sense, you know, what, what you're willing to care about. And this is our first subject, which we're going to devote 10 minutes to. Mm. Um, And then we will give 10 minutes to our, um, early U S settlements and philosophical subjects as well. But I think this is a good place to start because it's, it's where we are politically. Think things are dirty and in the digital world has really transformed a lot of, you know, the, the foundation of our, of our democracy and, and of our political yeah. policy landscape. I mean, the, the ambiguity that comes with doing things online now makes it so much easier not to be held accountable for. Yeah. So yeah, it's like to accuse Hillary Clinton and her campaign and, and her her political life up to the campaign to, to suggest that corruption um, and a willing to do whatever to win, if, if that if to suggest that that's why you don't like her and that's why you like Trump and support Tid Trump or maybe continue to support Trump, that's that's couldn't be more disingenuous. If that's your real rationale, and I think a lot of people would say that is why they hated Clinton. Uh-huh. Couldn't they, possibly have anything to do with what makes her her different than every other politician. <laughs> her. Yeah, I mean, there there are legitimate, I think, reasons to not have supported but her. But are any of those things you say about her not true for 98% well, that's the of thing. male politicians? Well, that's the thing. I mean, Trump in particular. And, the, and, yeah. and Trump, and now like with Cambridge Analytica as being a prime example... Um, you know, as being a firm they hired. Um, if you continue to support this, you know, or continue to believe that this is a presidency that is that is free of the corruption that you accused Hillary of, you're you're fooling yourself. Well, for a lot of people, the ends justify the means. Yeah, exactly. Electing Trump meant that they would get their Supreme Court right uh, judge. Just nominated. means to say the corruption, the emails, etc. Those elements. They didn't actually care about any of that. No, they were. That was a subterfuge. That was a straw man's argument. Yeah, Um, you weren't trying to address the issues you actually care about. No, not at all. And I mean, the the in all of the arguments and the debates that have taken place since Trump got elected, it feels like it's just straw man argument after straw man argument, and taking one instance of something, one anecdote, to try to nullify everything else just like the the way that policies are being made talk about the gun debate and this idea that you know the sheriff's department in florida that was tasked with protecting that school wasn't necessarily the best sheriff's department that somehow means that regulating guns should should be off the table because that is the only reason i mean it just seems like everything has gotten so dumbed down when we talk about issues yeah. now well i i'm personally of the mind that corruption 
in, in at the highest levels is is a problem and accountability is a problem we need to you know if we're going to exist in a flourishing democracy um there needs to be a level of of accountability and yes to some degree politics is going to be politics and, right and there's no rooting out um a lot of the the problems that are going to no, come of course not the problem is is that the political campaign that existed prior to this has carried over into the into the presidency and right into the, it's government. The, the constant yeah the constant campaign is becoming a problem and this is something we're going to get into uh in the early days you know the, the philosophy of of what this country is to be and what you know the, the politics of the country is to be and how that might best actualize you know the philosophical ideals there were debates, you know, of things like term limits, et cetera. Um, those that suggested like Adams or Hamilton, um, that actually were accused of being monarchists for having, uh, people in office for longer periods of time, um, in less elections. Uh, a lot of the reasons they cited were the, the dangers of constant election cycles. Yeah. Um, which, you know, having money poured in from all sides to can fuel the debate, it does seem that in the digital age mm-hmm. that we're more susceptible to falling into that, those cycles. And I think electing candidates that are more opportunistic to fueling, to being provocateurs, like I think Trump is, and fueling that anger and creating increasingly poor environments for all of the citizens um, that have to endure it and, you know, become enemies of their neighbor. I mean, Trump is the demagogue that Washington and Jefferson and everybody that was nervous about the democracy and from the start, he, he is that he is the epitome of that. He has the profile. <laughs> you don't think he's a demagogue? Oh no, he, abs- he absolutely is. I mean, that's. I think that was. He's something. the ultimate narcissist. My point is, is I think that was one of the biggest concerns when they were setting up, when they were writing the Constitution, was is this giving people too much liberty to to make bad choices? Yeah, George Carlin said uh, the in the United States, it truly is the land where anybody can become president, mm-hmm. and that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, I don't agree with that actually, personally, I, I believe, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, we can vote Trump out of office and that's a beautiful thing. If he is willing to accept the results of the election. Right. Um, right. Well, he's assuming he does lose. He's, he's going to have to, um, is and, he? and I, I, we don't know this yet. This is why this that's is an a, American tradition. This um, is how, this is why this is, well, right. All of these traditions that yeah. we thought were safe are no, are now up, up. To, yeah. The debate. I, I mean, mean, there are, you know, as close as can possibly be in government to sacred traditions. Uh, and that's, that's one of them. Um, and I think it's, 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 it, yeah, it is scary to think about, you know, that possibility, but that's a bridge you can't, I mean, that possibility, there. that possibility could be happening sooner than we think if, if he is charged, if he is indicted, um, and he, yeah. he, you know, what happens next? If, if the Democrats in, you know, in, in, in the midterms, uh, take the house and Senate, uh, it's safe to assume he will be a impeached. strong push for the impeachment. Oh, without um, a doubt. will, will, will go through November, um, November 8th. 2018 that that will happen that's an eventuality and i think that's going to be a a scary period 
um, I'm pretty excited for it, but yeah, it's also (laughs) kind of scary. No, I I mean, that's, you know, that's serious business. I don't think this is a Nixon scenario where he'll, um, I mean, you never really know, but Nixon saw the writing on the wall and got out of Dodge. Trump does seem to be someone who would sooner just set fire to everything. Yeah. um, So metaphorically, so I guess we kind of got a little off the original topic, which was how does all this digital media and, and companies like, or whatever it is, a Cambridge consulting company. I don't know what the hell they were. Yeah. A a a PR firm. So uh, this guy, the CEO of this firm was caught um, talking about setting up dummy firms basically in whatever country they're working through. Yeah. Russia. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and blackmailing candidates, set you know, setting prostitutes to their house, compromising situations, getting them on film, um, whatever it takes, setting I mean, up it, ads that can be misleading or can be you know pure propaganda, but doing it under a firm that can't be traced back to them. Yeah. Um, so if they're if a, if someone were accused of libel um, or uh, accused of um, slander, I guess. Uh, it couldn't be brought back to them and that damage would be done before they would have to see any consequences for those ads that in the candidates themselves could have their hands clean and say, Hey, that was, you know, that was a terrible habit. that had nothing to do with me or my campaign and they could get away with that. Mm-hmm. So they basically were give, they were providing their services to the highest bidders and they could do this on a mass scale and, and have, you know, data mines of millions of, of Facebook users specifically so they almost could have been like a middleman or like a broker between Putin right. and Trump. And these these are ads saying things like ex candidate, you know, uh, JoJo, JoJo, the wannabe politician, murdered somebody with his bare hands. Right. And they could send that to fifty million people um, that are you know proven to be voters susceptible to this, and it can be done in a legitimate way that makes it feel truly real. And on the one hand, we have to become so, yeah. more in, you know more intelligent people who understand things like citation and, and facts but can we honestly expect us to keep up with so here, here the, the thing that is interesting to me about all of this and I've had to kind of think about contemplate the past few days is Facebook looks really bad in this their company has lost 50 billion dollars worth of value in the last three days yeah that that's another a, a massive shade of this story yeah, yeah, yeah. But is, so th- of course they they do have some responsibility but it, i i can't help but agree with zuckerberg in some sense when he says should i be the one that says what should and shouldn't go on my platform like yeah it, no it, I, yeah i agree i mean that's a great question the people that are using facebook i don't really use it anymore i used to and i did find it very seductive. You, you, it makes you want to share so much about yourself. Yeah. And the, I, the thought of privacy never occurred to me back in the days when I used to use it a lot. It was like, I don't know. You never even thought about that, but it was only for college students. I got so drunk last night. Like, right. And, but the ways that it's being used in nefarious, the the nefarious ways it's being used, it's just kind of like, holy shit. You know, I never could have imagined this. It's being used in ways that change and shape the world. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing at large, but in in some cases, uh, extraordinarily shady politics have, are more effective. I guess perhaps than they used to be. I guess what I'm getting at is like the role of personal responsibility. You as an individual, 
I think you need to understand that using Facebook necess- necessitates that you might be involved in this this entire yeah. thing we're in. And by the same token, you know, you can't treat everything you see on there as fact. Like if if you're believing everything you see on there, that's that's on you. Like you need it to, is. That's very. I true. mean. I don't know. And it's stories just, like weird... this, high, stories like this, that you know, bombshell revelations like this, serve a purpose uh, not just in changing regulatory processes, but in highlighting issues, um, in highlighting the need to self-regulate as much as officially regulate. And I, yes, I do agree that measures need to be made. Uh, I believe that these are destructive tactics that should not be put into practice in future elections. And we should, you know, there should be regulatory authorities to prevent things like slander, you know, right. from political campaigns, you know, that go to such outrageous lengths or to try to blackmail candidates. That should not be officially sanctioned. Yeah, I mean, if people are treating it as a source of news, I think it should be regulated the same ways that news companies are treated. Yeah. And yet you watch Fox News <laughs> or MSNBC in some sense and. You know, well, you know, it's hard to differentiate it's, it's what's been, it's, opinion or news on there, that's too. That's so true. So it's it's been 10 minutes on this, uh, a little mm-hmm. more. And next week, we're going to talk about John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, you know, old, old Tommy Jefferson, and uh, John Adams specifically in reference to the Alien and Sedition Acts, uh, which were all about uh, newspapers and slander. Slander, yeah. And, libel. Uh, libel. And libel is in print. That's right. Um, so anything in print it was considered libel and um, he, that was the major controversy of his prison of his presidency <laughs> um, was the restriction of freedom of speech in the sedition acts particularly that um, goes all the way, you know, so th- these debates we're having in reference to Cambridge Analytica go all the way back to the founding of, of our country. Um, these are just extremely modernized examples of that. So there's, we'll, we'll yeah, circle back. There's a lot of, things we could tie in from what we yeah. just talked about the other thomas one, jefferson hired uh actually hired um hired people to uh commit libel uh against uh john adams you know they, they together wrote the declaration of independence mm-hmm. and then it came to that i mean these are not new issues but they have always been controversial and they should remain controversial and we should be striving to uh to rectify them always. And this is a well, major new avenue of libel. Well, one of the other things that we just talked about that I think would be good to bookmark, earmark, yeah. however you want to say it, rabbit ear. What is it when you like fold the page down in a book? Uh, rabbit ear, I guess. Okay. We'll go with that. But um, this tension or this, this conflict between the idea of term limits and which is something Washington established in his farewell address, which we, about this out, out, at the outset. Um, but you mentioned this, I hadn't even thought of it by having term limits. Are we also, have we also created this monster that is the constant campaign cycle? <laughs> I think it's safe to say. So there's like this weird, it, yeah. yeah, there's this weird tension there of like, you know, if we didn't have term limits, maybe we wouldn't have to deal with the constant campaign cycle. We have other problems. Well, um, I know we're going to get into that with our next subjects. Yes, uh, the problems we used to deal with before um, having what's you know the, the modern advanced democracy 
Um, so Go on. you said George Washington in his farewell address said, guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism. So I think before we can understand that, we need to get into the beginnings of this, our country. These, these are United States. talking about liberalism and, you know, all the, the freedoms we have when it comes to electing people um, like Trump. Classical liberalism. Classical liberalism. Right. But, yes, which I understand Some would that. say is modern-day conservatism. There's a lot of, lot of points yeah, of distinction. Yeah, it's confusing. We don't it's need to confusing. get into here. But, but it, when it, with Locke, it came from a, a certain place. It came from being free from what he would see as tyranny. He would have been drawn in court. If he had been caught by the king, he would have been literally torn limb from limb. Spread out his limbs, you know, publicly displayed across the country. So so liberalism in the way that we think of (laughs) libertarianism then. The the ability to choose the life you want, to be conscious about what you want without having any any other entity uh, coerce you to do something you don't want. His philosophy was... Couldn't have been more, um, had more in common with, you know, American revolutionary philosophy because he, he had the same aspirations. Oh yeah. Um, and so he's more like Rousseau who, who we, we discussed, um, then he's more like Rousseau than Hobbes because he believed that men had natural rights. He believed that we had baseline um, we deserved a baseline level of, of liberty. Um, unlike, uh, unlike Hobbes who felt that government and leadership was the only thing that provided us anything, any safety whatsoever. Um, so he had, he, he, he believed in, in, in that you could say is, you know, modern day conservatism to a degree in saying that we don't d- derive our freedoms from government protection we, we our, our freedoms come from god they're inalienable um but when when Locke said that uh we all deserve life liberty in the pursuit of or in property pursuit of property <laughs> in, in property what he meant by property point of clarification is is getting to keep the fruits of your labor mm. um not not literally like a, ha- a house or land when he said property it meant Know, what, what you earned, right? Right. Um, so, so the pursuit of happiness in in property, in Locke's case, are, are a little bit more um, 
synonym. They're they're more synonyms than maybe they might seem at base level. So let's uh, can we take a step back and yeah talk a little bit about what type of environment historical context Locke was living in. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily know the answer, but I'm guessing it. The reasons he was saying these things were a lot of the same reasons people left England and came to America. Exactly. In the first place, yeah. which was that although for a long time England was considered a uh, tolerant and welcoming society, I think at some point it became somewhat, yeah. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not repressive, but um, uh, the amount of laws and, yeah. and well, restrictions against being able to live the, the life yeah. you wanted. And, and at the same time, the world was opening up, you know, the new world in, in the pervasive uh, colonization of, you know, of the UK provided options for those that were aspirational to, you know, kind of go to the outer edges of, right. Which of, they otherwise wouldn't have even known was right. an option. Yeah. And this, this, the time of Locke, you know, 1650 ish, is is when you know the the colonies of the now United States were were really starting to ramp up in terms of population and migration. Um, so it's yes that a lot of early Americans were coming to the Americas maybe without expressly wanting and you know to to exercise their natural rights more freely. Um, and to that extent, the Declaration of Independence, and, and you know, as written by Jefferson, although John Adams was originally commissioned for it, he told Jefferson to do it for political mm. reasons. Having a Virginian write it, um, at this point, New England was already in the war. This was after Lexington and Concord. Um, having a Virginian write the Declaration of Independence and Sorry. having a Virginian lead the army was a very savvy pol- political oh, means Adams was so savvy to bring gosh uh, golly gosh I talk about it all the time he, he was from Massachusetts and a lot of people what a lot of people don't know is that Chris is from Maine yeah which was part of Massachusetts at, time, at that time so he and I are basically like twinsies and <laughs> <laughs> twins me and John Adams we're always completing each other we so. might be related John there's no way of knowing for sure it, yeah, we you might be related know. to Jefferson so you know probably um, so we'll just assume as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, getting in now to uh, the colonies as they were, as they were, <laughs> um, Americans responded uh, to to Locke very very favorably. Uh, we mentioned the early um, revolutionaries quoting Locke directly and citing him. Does he have so any like really famous quotes that we anyone would know? Like Does he have liberty it? in the pursuit of that's property. that's the one that's that's the big one that's the big one that's okay the big one but it was mostly his writings right and and so Adam Smith was someone who would have been more significant to the work of Alexander Hamilton and, yes. Uh, oh, yes. and John Adams to quite a degree as well um, in in dictating financial institutions well I think although I don't know for sure I'm assuming he was a very Hamilton read him very closely he must have. Yeah, yeah, in in the wealth of nations would have, would have been wildly liberal at its time, and now we would read it as a, a conservative tome, which is interesting, and it's something we could get into in another um, another episode. But I think the 
the tendency for conservatives to own Adam Smith is a, is a little, is a little weird. Oh, always. It's not, his yeah. writings were not purely Anytime, capitalistic. You know, once, once you get far enough back to try to ascribe any political party as having full ownership, um, it's almost it's like they endlessly, read, they read the first page of, of wealth of nations and decided that was all they needed to know. Right. Cause like, <laughs> like trying to see Jefferson as, you know, as, as a modern day conservative and then ju- try to juxtapose him against Adams as a modern day, um, li- liberal just doesn't hold water at all for just a million reasons. Right. They both, they both can kind of fit into, to either peg, even though they don't really fit into them at all. Right. <laughs> um, but so, Locke, Locke was decidedly on the side of classical liberalism, which meant the, to a limited government, very limited government, very limited, much government. more limited than right. what they had in England. Right. And ultimately that's what, uh, Jefferson um, was was known as a proponent for. Mm-hmm. But let's let's talk about the earliest colonial Americas, Chris. Well, you had three settlements, three biggins, three biggins, biggins, like the Jamestown and uh, the, the Plymouth James, Rock, the Jamestown, the Plymouth Rock, and the yeah. Jamestown. But Chris, there was also the Saint Augustine. Yeah, beautiful city. I've been there. It is very pretty. Lovely. I've been there as well. So Saint Augustine was actually founded. About 50 years before Jamestown, and uh, it doesn't get credit as being the oldest continuous city in the U.S. as often as it should. Um, this is because it was a Spanish settlement and not an English settlement. But St. Augustine, Florida has been continuously settled since 1565, mm. whereas Jamestown was settled in... 1607. That's right, 1607, but it was abandoned in 1610. That didn't take long. Um, for several years. So Jamestown really is just doesn't count. Uh, whereas Plymouth was continuously settled um, and was much more successful. Also, I mean, in the same way, Jamestown was a bit of a nightmare, as was as was yeah. the Pilgrim's Colony. So A lot of death. Yeah, so death. Jamestown was built in the middle of a, a massive Indian nation that they, you know, when they first landed there, they didn't really realize, you know, just how settled it was there there were hundreds of thousands of native americans already in that tidewater region of virginia mm-hmm. um hugely hugely populated area um these were people with a rebel kind of mindset and they brought more equipment to find gold than actual raw materials for building a settlement huh. these were these weren't necessarily settlers these were prospectors these were people that were trying to make a quick buck, were willing to take the very risky voyage across sea to make money. Carpetbaggers and scallywags. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and most of them died very quickly because uh, they weren't necessarily um, prepared for what they were getting into, the, the true harshness of it. So it was, it was several generations, um, at least in the Virginia setting, before uh, the idea of really you know, being settled and from what's now Virginia even began to take hold. Whereas, uh, um, over in Plymouth rock, it was, it was to be a settlement, you know, it was for religious fanatics as it were hardcore. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at a pilgrim and it's like, Oh man, that's, that's a guy who's going to try to sell me his religion right there. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, that's it. Yeah. I'm I'm very I'm much more familiar with the the pilgrim the story of the pilgrims, hmm. having been from Maine, 
Yeah. Um, so, well, it was successful. There's more. There's more good things to learn in terms of, you know, how to build a successful colony. If that's the lesson, um, Jamestown is a more of a cautionary tale, whereas Plymouth Rock is a is a tale of success and Thanksgiving being kind of a key ingredient of well, why but they in, were in both peaceful in, relations ish compared to after, Jamestown. After, yeah. Um, in both peaceful instances, though. with one tribe for a limited period of time. Right. In Plymouth, uh, Plymouth Rock. In both instances, though, it seems like you have a case. Plymouth? Is it just called Plymouth? No. Well, Plymouth Rock was like where they originally, the little island off the coast that they, okay. they docked their boat, hmm. the Mayflower. But in both instances, it seems like you have cases of, um, you know, the, the, the first wave of people that came over being like the early adopters or adapters, I should say early adapters. Yeah. And then when they failed, other groups would follow because they saw that it right. was feasible to, to live in this place. Like, hey, we've, <laughs> we've <laughs> most of you died, but yeah. we'll just come over we and forgot try to bring, you know, uh, stuff to build a house. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so in Jamestown, John Ralph, um, played by Christian Bale in the new world. Do you remember that movie? Interesting um, movie. I love that movie. It's um, good. Well done. So Terrence Malick. He was credited as getting tobacco leaves to grow, actually grow. So he he was representing of a class of people who actually made Jamestown work. Mm-hmm. And he married Pocahontas after John That's Smith right. bailed. Um, John Smith, not a good guy. Here's a little fun Colin fact. Colin Farrell. Could have could have guessed that. Colin Farrell, right? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> um, so he actually married Pocahontas and brought her back to England and. Fun fact about Pocahontas, she being known as a, a, a gorgeous woman, she was used in a poster advertising life in the colonies mm. um, that was that was widely distributed back in the in, in England, and uh, that marketing effort is actually why we know who Pocahontas is today. Really, the story of John Smith and Pocahontas, the, the the reason she really became famous. Yes, she did. Um, serve as like a friendly arbiter between you know the the, the local tribe and the what was the tribe there? there? Do you know? I I'm embarrassed to admit I don't remember. I know that in the in the case of the Pilgrims, it was the um, Wampanoag. Pretty sure. It, no, it was like the Pakanocket. The Pakanocket, Pokanocket. You Poc- say you say Pokanoc, I say Wampanoag. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it started with a P. The Pokanocket, um, I think. I, I, the pronunciation is probably wrong. Oh, the Pawtuckets. The Pawtuckets. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was in Plymouth. But the uh, the reason we know Pocahontas was because she was the subject of a marketing effort to move to the colonies in um, in back in England. And also the star of a Disney movie. I mean, <laughs> come on. John. The reason she's a star of a Disney movie <laughs> no, is because she's I was, a marketing I was making a joke. But um, failed. So, but this guy John Ralph, her the guy who became her husband is the foundation of how the South became a farm-based economy. Um, it was illegal for the British to plant tobacco. The Spanish had a, a legal agreement to mm. own the tobacco trade. Wow. And they actually kept the secret of how to grow tobacco close to the hip. Nobody knew how to grow tobacco. It was like, it was something they... It was only a matter of time before, obviously, someone figured it out. John Ralph was the guy who successfully built the first tobacco farm in Virginia, uh-huh. which the South became, before cotton became 
uh, but it's, based on I mean, that. that that really did establish the destiny or the, the fate oh, of yeah. the self. And, so and, where, and that that plays out in so many ways politically, too. Oh, God, Virginia, I mean, where we both lived, where we went to college, my, one of my favorite bars, the Tobacco Company in Tobacco Row, Richmond, Virginia. I mean, that's what built early Virginia. That's where Jefferson, period. that's the only reason Jefferson was what he was, right? I mean... He, he, he smoked three packs a day. Yeah, was. No, I mean, but that's where his wealth came from. Yeah, uh, yeah, a tobacco farm, for sure. That's where all of Virginia's wealth came from. Um, so the Pilgrims were 10 years after Jamestown. Um, and that, that was the foundation for the North becoming more populous than the South because of the wider success. Populous, as in more people? Populated, yeah. Okay, I don't um, know if it was a populist. Yeah, so they, they built a successful partnership with the local Indians, um, unlike in Jamestown where it just uh, dissolved into, you know, warring chaos, uh, chaos. Uh, the pilgrims, you know, uh, uh, it's true to say, you know, despite of what ultimately happened, those early days were marked by successful partnerships with, with the, the Pawnucket, Poconuts. I think it's Pawtucket. Pawtucket Indians. Um, they, they were peaceful and became allies. Um, that being said, 50% of, uh, of, of those that came on the Mayflower did perish perish in the first <laughs> year. Um, so it wasn't that great. Um, these were permanent new residents, though. Um, and, and once they learned how to uh, um, survive through that first winter, uh, became the, the first successful English colony in these here United States. God bless. God bless. These United States. These United States. Um, and there were numerous confirmed cases of the settlers marrying Indians. Um, huh. Yep. And uh, 10% of Americans today can tie their ancestry to the Mayflower specifically. You know, 10%. One out of three ships. And, and be, keep in mind, what's, what's unique about uh, Plymouth Rock compared to Jamestown is that when these ships, these famous ships dropped off, dropped off everybody that was on them. The, the settlers, the ships left. They went back to England. Right. There was no, there was literally no way for them to return. They were home. stranded. Yeah. They were stranded. This was either going to work or they were all going to die. There was no in between. It must've been terrifying. Can you imagine? But yeah. they also had their, their belief system, their faith in God. Yeah. To, to yeah. And it, and it, but also the necessity of, you know, not having an escape route, created peace, I think, perhaps, um, with the local, local populations. It created a necessity mm-hmm. um, that, that proved fruitful for them. Um, until, you know, until uh, everything turned terrible for the local Indians. Um, right. Just a few Small generations pox. later, right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So what's interesting is we all know a lot about the first decade or so of the settlements, but I feel like there's a distinct gap in my knowledge of what happened between like 1640 and 1770. Yeah, me too. And that's, that's, that's what I was able to spend a little time trying to fill in some gaps for myself. It must've just been a matter of growing the population and creating settlements and developing commerce and all of these. Yeah. So land, I mean, land was king, right? Land is what was the major driving force Um, to be a non-landed Englishman or Irishman or Scotsman to come 
to the new world and have access to land to call your own was extraordinarily alluring. And this is where this is where Locke. This is part of what drove yeah. his yeah and, and pursuit of property to be you know a hundred years later someone who whether consciously or not uh, the, the ideals philosophical underpinnings of of Locke specifically um, were incredibly widespread. He was he was world famous by this point. He right. was set fire you know revolutionary ideals across you know across the Western world were attributed to this man. Um, well, the notion of owning property was fairly unique at that time. Um, if you weren't born with it, you weren't, you didn't right. really necessarily have an expectation you'd ever have any. And my point is, is that, but rapid colonization, that was such a huge factor in determining what type, the of, British what type government, of, what type of economy, the, economy the, the, we, the become. British government pushed it. Like we talked about that marketing yeah. campaign with Pocahontas. They needed people if they were going to successfully colonize to go claim land. And they had to put that in front of would be colonizers saying, Hey, you can go get land, come here, you know, remain a British citizen, but you'll get land and, you know, we'll provide the protection for you as you do that. So they kind of sowed the seeds um, for a lot of their own, um, their own ultimate loss after, We'll get there. Spoiler, I guess spoiler alert. Part of what I'm getting at, though, too, is more of a, on a philosophical level. This idea that in order to be successful or prosperous in life, you have to own property, you have to own land. Yeah, that's something that defines us as Americans. That's kind of synonymous with the American dream. Yeah, um, land it, plenty. It was the antithesis of what Native Americans believed. Yeah, um, and, and that clash of civilizations really yeah to have a a extremely assertive invading presence of land of of you know the claiming of land versus uh nomadic uh tribal lifestyles were couldn't have been more at odds um philosophically i mean at at the root level of even just just you know the day-to-day existence they they couldn't have been more at odds and i would argue that it's at the root of a lot of the problems we have now this idea that everybody should have whatever property they want that idea of libertarianism and you know that was all good and fine at that time but when you carry it to through to to present day sure what what does that mean when the you know a higher and higher percentage of your society lives in cities. No, I mean, which it, is, is the reality of, you know, it's not just that pretty much I, most. I'm, I'm talking about it on, on the level of like consumerism. I mean, that's what it, it ultimately leads to. Like um, if you take it to its limit, it's all about consuming and, and owning things. And, and that's, that become like pursuit of property, pursuit of happiness. Those two things become intertwined right. in a lot of ways. Yeah. I know. Maybe is, I'm, maybe I'm built, taking it in well, a different direction. I, I firmly believe that these philosophical underpinnings, dictate the course of our society. That's why I, I'm enjoying, you know, this dig. Well, no, I, so the point I'm trying to make yeah. is those things were absolutely necessary to get where we are now. That's the yeah. conundrum. They we, were, wouldn't, we wouldn't be here if, if not for they these were, beliefs. A lot of these belief systems served as a carrot to, to motivate us um, right. towards what ends, you know, that they can be buried. The invisible hand. The invisible hand, yeah. Um, and I think a lot of it is natural. I, I think... Um, I think some elements of what led our society to where it is and what America has become 
were natural courses that you know maybe weren't expected, but to some degree were inevitable. But I think to other degrees were guided by men. Um, we keep talking about men, the female men, philosophers. Men, we're going to get into men, Abigail men, Adams men, a good men. bit. What we're talking about Jan Adams. Uh, she is a deserved hero. Uh, an anti. She was of, of of anybody involved in the American Revolution. She was the anti-slavery voice and, and pushed her husband mm-hmm. um, on the issue in substantive ways. Uh, so that's you know, I think the, portrayed by Laura Linney in the, in the HBO miniseries. Great miniseries. Yeah, based I'm, I'm going to rewatch it. As based part off of the, the book by. Not Mick, uh, Mick. What is his name? Oh crap! Uh, he wrote a very, very popular uh, book about John Adams that was served as the primary. Uh, he has a name. Influence. We'll he, figure he it out. He has a name. <laughs> um, we'll get into that next time. But I think so. Land, land, right? Yeah, land, land is what it's brought people land. over here. And there was something called the Proclamation Line. The British mm. government. Um, I mean, this was an ever-moving line. But before the revolution, um, there was a Proclamation Line that the British government promised uh, we would not push past. But this demand for land and thousands of settlers moving to the New World, they were settling past that line. Chris, can you believe it? And there were there weren't there weren't there weren't British forces there to enforce the line, the redcoats, and um, and you know the most of the Indian tribes at the you know western edges of of uh, North America or British, the British Proclamation Line didn't have maps to know where the line was. Um, obviously, communication issues were rampant, but people just kept settling more and more. That's what happens. Yeah, it's like that movie Far and Away with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. It's exactly like that. <laughs> they just shoot the gun and you go run and you That's stake serious, your land. man. I remember. Yeah, I know. Uh, okay. you, get, you literally get a little flag and you, yeah. you literally stake it in the ground. That, that actually happened. Um, yeah, so what, you know, in the early period leading up to the Revolutionary War, the crown did start actually, the British crown did actually start further trying to enforce that line and telling so, and if, if actually evicting people for uh, for taking land west of the proclamation line. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting about all the stuff you're talking about is that the constant here is that the, the British crown was sort of like this puppet master, just like incentivizing people to do all these things. And what, what was their objective? What were they trying to get out of this? Resources, right? 
Yeah, timber, uh, North America, at this point, early settlements, timber to build ships, they were... For the Navy. They were, yeah, the world's largest Navy, and they were ever growing. The Americas, North America, was the absolute best spot for them to get old, advanced, you know, hundreds and hundreds of year old trees created the best timber, created the best ships. Um, They had over a thousand um, ships... I mean, I know in the Revolutionary War, there were like 500 British ships just on the U.S. coast. And each one of those ships, cost-wise, were the equivalent of like a modern-day... Um, Air Force carrier? Uh, yeah, Air, Air Force carrier. Like carrier. Aircraft carrier. <laughs> so, you know, the equivalent of like, you know, several hundred million dollars each for each one of these ships. Yeah. Um, and U.S. Uh, uh, timber in North America was the best source for them to build those ships. I'm um, also paper, uh, you know, anything, anything pulp came from pa- paper, pulp, maple syrup for maple syrup. Well, I mean, I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is like, it, it's interesting to understand the relationship that existed between Britain and the colonists and what ultimately led to us revolting and saying, we don't want to be part of this anymore. We want to be on our own, Boston. which only seems natural, right? It, it but, yeah, there's but, an element and of... Yet, and yet we adopted so much of what they had before, yeah. minus the monarchy, and we're we, still, to this day, very closely yeah. tied to them. We adopted, you know, f- philosophies, and we actualized, we became practitioners of, uh, of political science and philosophy that was, you know, disproportionately British in origin. Uh, it's just that they existed in a continuous framework that was harder to completely abolish than you right. know, we were in an environment where we they could were, build anew. Right. They were sort of uh, a, a prisoner to their to their traditions and their, to their norms, which in some ways it feels like we're getting to that point too. Eventually, yeah. Every society is going to have their, uh, their built-up... Um, Sclerosis, is that the word I'm looking for? Somewhere, like, when things become almost too rigid, too fixed in in stone. Well, we complain sometimes about um, the rate of change being too quick, I guess, and then um, also being um, stuck in in our infrastructure. Yeah. Um, That's always going to be the case um, as you go. But I think another perhaps the most fascinating thing to come out of the U S revolution was um, even before the U S revolution, um, the state of Virginia becoming the first government in the history of the world that was officially secular without religion. That was separation. That was Jefferson. Um, and Jefferson, I'm going to have some bones to pick with the man in time. We'll get there. But, uh, to be the first officially secular um, government body in the world, that is fascinating. Mm, it um, is. And, and rooted in, um, in, in day-to-day political Virginia reality. Virginia is a, is a fascinating state because it's, in some ways, you, it's, it, a it's beacon, the fashion of... beacon of liberalism. But in other ways, it doesn't seem like that at all. Like, if you go to certain parts of... Virginia now True. it's like the deep deep south. It's got a little bit of everything, and it was the capital of the Confederacy. So it's Indeed like it was. it's hard to it's hard Alabama to reconcile a lot of these things. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, 
yeah, Virginia is, can be a topic in and of itself, but I think Jefferson specifically is someone we're going to get into deeply next week. Um, Jefferson and Adams will be our, our focus next week. Uh, we got to have Hamilton figures. too, man. Hamilton's we'll right there. We'll discuss Hamilton, yeah. He's got to be part of it, John. Yeah, but everybody leave him out, John. Ha- Hamilton has gotten a lot of talk lately, and I think we'll flush it in further by focusing um, on Adams and Jefferson. Fair enough. Specifically. Um, the well, actual presidents, unlike <laughs> Hamilton. So Boston. Yeah. Boston, major role in the revolution. Major port, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's on the. Is it on the ocean, Atlantic or Indeed, Pacific? It is. It's. I don't uh, know. I'm not from Massachusetts. It's there, man. It's, uh, it was. Uh, it's where it all started, actually. Yeah. It, Paul it, Revere. Paul Revere. There was one red coat for every four citizens in Boston, so things were already intense. Well, that's you know they were regulating the how, port. That's how John Adams came to fame was defending the British soldiers that were uh, accused of mer- massacring. Yes, he the did. colonialists in the Boston Massacre, which yes, we've all he heard did. about. And isn't that um, ironic? Well, the, that, that's... The, the revolutionaries were pretty pissed at him the, for defending them. Right, and that's kind of what set the stage for that miniseries March 5th, about him. 1770, the Bloody Massacre. What was great about the way that show was designed was they used that, that part of his life in the first episode to define him as a man of principles. Indeed he was. He was not going to be biased based off of his nationality or his background. He cared about the law, and he was, by all means, the biggest proponent of being a nation of laws. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, everybody at the Constitution, he Constitutional Convention he was, but he, he was really the father of that. He was, and he was also, like Hamilton, who's getting a lot of chatter these days, as we said, Adams was a man who came from uh, not abject poverty, but very modest means, unlike you know the aristocrats of you know Washington Jefferson, mm-hmm. Madison, uh, Adams was a poor guy who, through strengths of personality and was known as kind of a abrasive, loud guy, he had to be he was a um, curmudgeon. To, to kind of wedge himself into the conversation because um, he didn't have the money to just place him there naturally. Right. Um, and he was a man of principle, like you said. Although I would argue at that point in Boston's history, you didn't necessarily need to have a lot of money. It was in the early days. I think it was probably a little more egalitarian than yeah. what you saw in Virginia. The Calvinists, man, the Calvinists yeah. did not really believe in, uh, the Calvinists had a firm belief in earning your role in a substantive way. Well, what's interesting about this though, is that it also became the, along with New York, it became the center of commerce in the, yeah. and, and you know, it was not aristocratic, right? Relative to Virginia, I mean, Virginia was, you know, as aristocratic as it gets. Yeah, Um, but it's funny just because, you know, as we've seen it play out over time, that that commerce, those the mercantilism can lead to great amounts of wealth. And in in their own way, they become sort of like aristocrats just by having so much money. Sure. As, like yeah. just like New York and Boston are as, now, as they just like the Yankees, like the Yankees and the Red Sox now, they're the two best teams because they have the most resources. Are they the best teams? Um, every year they're they're pretty they're, they're up the there. They're okay. in the mix. Yeah. So here's some fun facts. You mentioned Paul Revere. He was um, largely known for making political cartoons and writing poetry. Um, <laughs> so sensitive. Yeah. He he wrote. <laughs> or he, a he, he, he drew too. he drew a cartoon about what became known as the bloody massacre um, of the British soldiers killing five 
protesters um, in, in, in Boston. Um, and he titled it The Bloody Massacre. It's Was the it name. Bloody or Boston Massacre? Uh, people, then people started calling it The Boston ah, Massacre. Ah, okay. Um, but, you know, people in Boston didn't call it, they called it The Bloody Massacre. He was going then, for a bit more of a macabre title. <laughs> Um, so Boston at the time had the world's first weekly newspaper and there were, uh, 40 papers in the North American colonies at the time, 1770. Um, and Benjamin Franklin, old Benny Frank was the postmaster general of the U S colonies and he had introduced a revolutionary postal delivery system. So he got the news out. So the U S colonies, this, this bloody massacre, Boston massacre got all across the colonies and people were pissed. Yeah. Before it word even got back to the uh, British Crown, hmm. so the distribution Riots. the distribution of information was actually far more efficient and advanced in what's now the U.S. Um, than it was back in Britain. So there were there were already substantive, you know, in terms of policy and governance of of the actual um, distribution systems. There were already differences yeah. and innovations happening in the u.s that set us apart in positive ways that's interesting ain't it it is yeah it is you you, uh you got a lot of notes there yeah man yeah um of course the british closing boston harbor as a response to the tea party is really one that diffuse we know this oh the tea party yeah yeah taxation without representation which is interesting because when the tea party of 2010 came along they were touting the same line, which was ironic. They did have representation. Because we all have representation now. Yeah, it, it's a, yeah that, that's on them. <laughs> I'm just I love Patton Oswalt in uh, Parks and Recreation. He was always dressing up as like a, a Boston Tea Partier <laughs> yeah. and going to the like, in like the middle of Indiana, going to like their government. Uh, like He's a funny little man. Ain't he though? He just runs around like a little guy. So 1774, First Continental Cong- Congress, Patrick Henry getting loud. Is he um, give me liberty or give me death? Indeed, he is Richmond, Virginia. Did he get tarred on the feathered? Steps. Did he? I don't know. Maybe it was mostly the the British, uh, British, <laughs> the British that were getting tarred and feathered I, in Boston. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, Lexington and Concord for shots fired in Le- in Massachusetts, um, almost up into what's now Maine, but not quite. Not quite. No, we were we were unscathed for the most part. Um, British sees these guys' weapons, you know, hence why we all need AR-15s today. Yep. Um, Revere was said to have made his midnight ride. There's some debate about that, actually, if you believe it, that the whole the British are coming thing. There's there's some questions. Oh, that couldn't possibly have been just, uh, like, you know, sen- sensationalized. No way. How no. dare you? Well, apparently the, the actual, the militia, um, they had weeks of warning. Um, what they didn't have was an exact date. Um, so they had hid most of, of their weapon stockpiles weeks in advance. Um, but, but Paul Revere did find out the exact date and he, he, he was said to have warned them. Um, yeah, so that, those are the official, official beginning of the war. And, uh, these founding fathers, basically long story short, they were given an opportunity to become practitioners to mm-hmm. actually put these foundational philosophies into public policy. Well, you mean after the war was won? After the war was won. I mean, well, which, even which, during, was, which was by no means a, a foregone conclusion. By no Nobody means. believed that the Nobody Americans really could beat the strongest navy right. in the world. They thought... I, I mean, Army, yeah, too. But, you know, 
they were all the founding fathers. You know, were were going to die if they lost. Well, this is what uh, I mean. so it's a fascinating. Anybody who signed the Declaration of Independence was it was a death warrant if they did not win the war. Plus, we had the manifest destiny thing on our side too. I mean, we were destined to be what we are, right? I mean, isn't that manifest destiny came later? I know. I'm I'm just saying that that this idea that America was destined it was it was fated to to be this was the to beginning jump. this was the beginning of that idea well that's what i'm trying to say yeah, i'm sure. not saying that, that anyway yeah so the, the declaration of independence was high treason and it was a philosophical statement so things were getting exciting chris that's what i'm trying to say um and the british dominated the coast but the americans started winning inland yeah Probably through guerrilla warfare. Entirely through guerrilla warfare. Another good show, just to mention, because it sort of ties into this, is called Turn. It's all I about, heard about that. Yeah, it's all about um, spy. The, the spy ring um, that that helped to win the war. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Huh. Well, we'll look forward to that, Chris. <laughs> um, so, Adam Smith, or no, sorry, uh, John Adams for next week. John Adams and Tommy Jefferson. And, and Hamilton. Uh, and Hamilton. We'll he's sneak gonna, some of that. He can't help but We'll sneak some Washington in there. We'll sneak some Madison in there. Um, oh, Madison was a... He was a I, I always think of him as being the guy next to Thomas Jefferson that's just like, yeah, at the end of <laughs> what his What he statements. said. Word. <laughs> but that's not entirely accurate. We'll no, he was, that a, little he was bit. a smart dude. I was he just wrote a lot of the Federalist Papers. Oh, yeah. Um, he's, he's a very sharp guy. But um, Plus, he got Dolly. Power, I guess he did. Him, yeah, she's still around, so you can tell us all about him. <laughs> but uh, another innovation, I'll, I'll end with this, um, on top of the distribution of, of news and information um, and the what Benjamin Franklin um, helped uh, just basically set up what became the U.S. postal system, um, which was a, a first in the world of its model. Um, American-made long rifles were the mm. most accurate long-range weapons ever built, and, uh, and American frontiersmen knew how to use them. And they were fighting that guerrilla warfare. And they were fighting guerrilla tactics. They uh, they would kill the Native American scouts for, of the British soldiers first. These were British soldiers, most of which had never been to the North American colonies, um, and they were just you know trying to secure the outer perimeters of British-controlled. Um, you know, in the early days of the war, British control, British soldier controlled territories, the frontiersmen would kill their local Native American scouts so that these British soldiers were just effectively lost. Mm. Um, and then their next tactic was to kill, um, uh, they would target the British officers. Yeah, which bro- what entirely broke the rules of 18th century English warfare. Hey, man, the ends justified the means. Indeed, so and the the British. I mean, it's funny. It's amazing to think how ill prepared the British soldiers really were for this. I mean, yeah, did they expect that the no. revolutionaries would be fighting by the rules? They did. <laughs> they actually, did. So that was their first mistake. Yeah, and I mean, they had superior training in all respects, but. By all accounts, without their uh, without their commanding officers, it, they they would lose lopsided battles um, dramatically. 
Mm. Uh, they, they were not trained to fight without their, um, their superior officers, um, controlling their movements. Um, so interesting seed to, uh, how the Americans ultimately were to, uh, prove successful in winning that war. Yeah. I mean, thank God they did. Right. I guess. And now we have Donald Trump. Yeah. Sorry. We really do. <laughs> and, and some people are calling for a return to the monarchy as a result. <laughs> like maybe let's, yeah, it does seem appealing now. Yeah. Um, but you know, we do have this fortunate environment where, you know, we, we can vote um, and we can change things up again and maybe it'll be better, but you never really know until you vote. I voted in the primaries the other day and I'm, I'm a good citizen. Who'd you vote for? <laughs> I voted for a lot of people. There's That's a lot good. of people on that ballot. Yeah. Um, did you mention Benjamin it, Thomas Wolf did not win. Were you on the, um, the democratic primary excited. or is it open primary? Um, it was an open primary. So you could vote for the Republicans too. Yeah. You, you didn't vote for the Nazi. I hope I did not vote for the Illinois Nazi. A Nazi is, real is, is representing is, is the Republican on the ballot Party. running for Congress in Illinois. Um, he is on the Republican ballot. Um, that's, that's real. So good job, GOP. Good job, Illinois, GOP yeah. specifically. Really doing, really uh, making a good name for Looking real right good. Looking real good. Um, that's shameful. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. And on that note, we'll see you next week. We're going to talk, uh, we're going to get into um, the early founding fathers. Early founding fathers, a little bit more Locke, maybe some other philosophers involved, maybe some Kant. Ooh. I'm dying to talk some cunt. I know. Cunt talk next week. That's right, everybody. Brace yourselves. What did I say? I think um, you, that was just your... Sometimes with words, you have like your southern accent seeps in a little. Yeah. So you'll say, you'll say like, like uh, what did you say a minute ago? You said, um, I forgot. But yeah, sometimes I think your accent just slips in there and kind of makes words sound different. Sounds fun. Um, yeah, so instead I, of cunt, you'll say... Your you will be a little harder there. Ah, yeah. Or the drawl, the southern drawl, that drawl, kinda, that, that that hard ah, that you know, like, Yeah, Northerners, <laughs> Yankees can really get, can really, you know, accent that ah. You know, ah. I, 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 you're all about the. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Good night, everybody. See you next Tuesday. Yeah, tip your, tip your part. Just see what I did there.